Matthew chapter 2 says this, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea. For so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother... They fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. Being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt. Remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years or or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel. For those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in the place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And when he, li- he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was... was- spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled that he would be called a Nazarene. Well, there's a survey that was conducted in late October, early November of this year. And in this survey, uh, they asked people what their resolutions would be for 2023. And the resolutions that people came up with were pretty common. You'd probably guess these resolutions. Number one resolution was exercise more. Number two was eat healthier. Number three was to lose weight. Number four was to spend less and save more. And number five was to spend more time with family and friends. Now the sad part about resolutions is resolutions almost always fail. Uh, While surveys show that over 50% of people believe that they can keep their resolutions, surveys also show that only about 9 to 12% of people actually keep their resolutions. And you could probably guess what these resolutions would be for 2023 because Usually, resolutions are the same every single year. Um, there's the famous literary writer Samuel Johnson wrote this in his diary in 1738. O Lord, enable me to redeem the time which I have spent in sloth. Nineteen years later, he wrote this. 
Almighty God, enable me to shake off sloth and redeem the time misspent in idleness and sin by diligent application of the days yet remaining. He wrote a variation of that prayer every year for the next 30-some years. Finally, in 1775, 38 years later after his first resolution, he wrote, When I look back upon resolution and improvement and amendments which have year after year been made and broken, why do I yet try and resolve again? I try because reformation is necessary and despair is criminal. We make resolutions and we often break them. And by no means am I suggesting that resolutions are bad. I have some resolutions that personally I'm trying to keep. But I think we need something deeper than New Year's resolutions. I think we need something deeper than just a desire to lose weight or spend more time in God's Word or spend less, save more. I think we need something deeper. And I think we need to know what we do when we fail. I, need, I think we need a resolution that is resilient enough to deal with failure. Because that's how it often works, right? We have resolutions and we, we want to accomplish something and we're doing well until we get to wherever, middle of January, February, and then we hit a wall and then they just kind of go by the wayside. We need something that's resilient that's going to help us deal with failure. How, how are we going to deal with a situation where maybe we've been trying to exercise, but we come down with a knee injury, we can't exercise anymore? Or we resolve to spend time with friends and loved ones, but our job just keeps us away. Or maybe we resolve to spend time in God's Word, and then there's a day or a couple of days where we just don't do it for whatever reason. Maybe we plan to spend less, save more, but then this unexpected expense comes up and it just kills our budget. How do we deal with that failure? What, do we, what, what can we have that's resilient enough to deal with our failures? I think when it comes down to our New Year's resolutions, at the core of what a resolution is, it's really a desire to control our circumstances. And, you know, again, it's not a bad thing, but, you know, sometimes our lives feel like they're out of control, and so we're like, okay, I'm going to try to lose weight. I'm going to try to eat healthier. I'm going to try to be better financially. I'm going to try to have some self-control. And these things make us feel like we're in control of our lives. I think we need something deeper. What do we do when our life is out of control? What do we do when we've failed? And I think for many of us, we need to focus less on trying to control our circumstances because the reality is we don't have the control over our lives that we think that we do. Pastor and author Justin Buzzard once said this, you know you have a control idol if your greatest nightmare is uncertainty. You know you have a control idol if your greatest nightmare is uncertainty. In 2022, life is uncertain. The past year, we've seen a lot of different things. We've seen political instability. We've seen financial instability, soaring inflation. Uh, we've seen this war in Ukraine and, and the prospect of nuclear war. We've seen all of these things, and, you know, we feel like we're out of control. Uh, the Collins English Dictionary revealed the 2022 word of the year was the word permacrisis. Permacrisis is a noun but defined by the UK-based publisher HarperCollins as, quote, an extended period of instability and insecurity, especially one resulting from a series of catastrophic events. A blog post on the Collins Dictionary website noted that the term rings true because of the war in Ukraine, 
climate change challenges, political instability, and the surge in inflation. The article goes on to say uh, that the term embodies the dizzying sense of lurching from one unprecedented event to another as people wonder what new, new quote, horrors uh, are around the corner. So we, we have these big things in our lives that are out of our control, you know, national, global things. And then we have uncertainty in our own lives. Uh, maybe we have a loved one who's dealing with a debilitating illness. Uh, maybe we're, we've lost a job. Uh, maybe we're starting something new. Uh, maybe we have uncertainty in a relationship. And so our lives are filled with uncertainty. And you think about 2022, that was filled with uncertainty. And the sad reality is 2023 is going to be filled with uncertainty as well. That's life in our world. We live in a world of uncertainty. So 2023 is just going to be just as uncertain as 2022. And in this passage that we looked at, as I just read, uh, we see kind of two different ways to handle uncertainty. And the first way that we can handle uncertainty is exemplified by King Herod, and that is through control. We can handle uncertainty by trying to control our circumstances. And Herod is kind of a test case in that desire for control. Uh, so Herod uh, has these wise men come to him, and the wise men are seeking the king of the Jews. And uh, think that you know, kind of was troublesome for Herod was he was called the king of the Jews. The wise men come to Herod because you know he's the king of the Jews. He's in Jerusalem, and they're probably expecting that it would the king of the Jews would be his son, or that it'd be born. Uh, the king would be born in in. Uh, Jerusalem. Uh, and so it says in the text that Herod and all of Jerusalem was troubled by this. Now, why was Jerusalem troubled by this? It wasn't because they were afraid of Herod losing their thro his throne. Uh, in fact, they were probably hoping for that. They hated Herod. At least most people did. But they were troubled because Herod was troubled, and he was in this maniacal reign, rage to try to uh, keep, keep himself from losing power. See, Herod would do anything to maintain power. And so he pretends like he's interested in the Messiah, tells these wise men, okay, go find this Messiah, find this king. When you find him, come back to me and report, tell me where he is, and I'm going to go and worship him. And, of course, the wise men throw a wrench in that plan when God reveals to them that, you know, Herod has bad intentions, don't go back to him. And so Herod is just in a really bad place. He's just in a rage. So he decides, since the wise men don't come back to him, he's just going to kill every baby that he can, try to wipe them all out. And so he, he orders for all the, the children in Bethlehem and the surrounding region to be put to death two years and under. And we look at his actions, and his actions are both paranoid and illogical at the same time. They're paranoid because, again, he's the king of the Jews. He has untold power, he has untold resources, he has untold armies at his disposal, and he's terrified of a little baby. I mean, even if Jesus was to become the king, the king of Israel, and become a national king, how long would it take for Jesus to grow up and to even be a threat at all? And yet Herod is terrified. And that's what our desire for control, that's what uncertainty can do sometimes. It can cause us to uh, react in a way that's disproportionate to the situation. You know, maybe that takes the form of anxiety where, you know, there's just kind of a little fear and we make it into a really big fear, a really big issue. 
And, and that's what uncertainty can do. And that's what happens with Herod. He's just in a rage because this baby is being born. And he'll do anything to destroy this baby. So his actions are paranoid. His actions are also illogical. There was a belief in the ancient world that uh, the gods would announce the birth of a king with a star. So King Herod claimed to be a Jew. And so he claimed to worship the true God. So presumably if there was a star that appeared in the sky, it would be brought about by the true God. And so if there was a star that was announcing the birth of a king, it would be God's doing. It wouldn't be man's doing. And yet Herod, even though he claims to be a Jew, he's fighting against that. And he's fighting against fate, and really he's trying to fight against God, believing that he can win, believing he can change his circumstances. And so he'll do anything to control his fate. He's maniacal in his desire to control his circumstances, and it causes him to do illogical things, even to fight against God. Macrobius, a pagan writer of Rome, wrote this in his book Saturnalia. He wrote, when it was heard that as part of the slaughter of boys up to two years old, Herod, king of the Jews, had ordered his own son to be killed, he, the emperor Augustus, remarked, it is better to be Herod's pig than his son. This was a reference to how uh, King Herod, as a Jew, wouldn't kill pigs, he wouldn't eat pigs, but he had his three sons put to death because he suspected that they were going against him, suspected them of treason. So he was just out of control in his desire to control his circumstances. And, and really, I think what it was rooted in was it was rooted in a deep-seated insecurity. He was afraid someone was going to take him out. He's afraid of that because he was the one that was on the other side of that at one point. He gained power when he killed King Antigonus several years prior, and he's afraid someone's going to come up and take his throne. He's also something of an imposter as well. Though he was called the king of the Jews, he, ethnically he wasn't Jewish. He was a convert to Judaism, or so-called convert to Judaism. So he wasn't really even the king of the Jews. And so he probably has this deep-seated insecurity that he's afraid, afraid that someone's going to take him out, whether it's a baby or somebody else. And so Jesus is a threat to his sovereignty. And, and the reality is Jesus is always a threat to sovereignty. Jesus is always a threat to our kingdom because there can only be one person on the throne. It's either Christ or someone else. So Jesus isn't an add-on to our, our lives. He doesn't come in to our lives as a subject. He only comes in as a king. And so he's always a threat to our control. He's always a threat to our sovereignty. And so Herod tries to mitigate this threat, Jesus, at all, at all costs. The ironic and sad part of the story is, in the end, Herod realizes that he's not in control of anything. Despite all of his attempts to maintain power, maintain control, the end of his life is pretty grim. He gets a debilitating, painful disease. Um, many scholars, uh, medical doctors believe today it was uh, arteriosclerosis that was untreated for several years. And literally his body wasted away, decomposed, and the worms ate him alive. And he tried to control everything, and in the end, he realized he's completely out of control. And the truth is, despite our attempts to control our circumstances, we have to realize in the end, we're out of control. We don't have the control we hope we do. Uh, Tim Keller tells a story about one of his mentors. He's a college professor named Addison Leach, and he had 
two young women who came to, uh, to, came for, to his class. And uh, these two young women had aspirations to go on and get their master's degree and have a successful career. And then they became Christians, and they both decided that they were going to become missionaries. Their parents were furious. And so one of the, the mothers called up Dr. Leach, thinking that Dr. Leach was the one that pushed them in that direction. And she said this, that Dr. Leach had made them into religious fanatics. Rather than pursuing the course they had hoped, getting a career and having security, they were going off widely into the blue. The mother went on and said, we want our daughter to get a master's degree, start her career and get something in the bank so she could have some security. Dr. Leach responded this way. Please just let me remind you of something. We're all on a little ball of rock called Earth, and we're spinning along through space at zillions of miles per hour. Even if we don't run into anything, eventually we're all going to die, which means that under every single one of us, there's a trap door that's going to open one day, and we're all going to fall off this ball of rock. And underneath will either be the everlasting arms of God or absolutely nothing. So maybe we can get a master's degree to get some security, but the biggest savings account in the world cannot stop cancer. It can't stop traffic accidents. It cannot stop broken hearts. It can't give you anything. Any of the things that God can give you. He's the only significance you, ha you can have. He's the only love that you can get and can't lose. We don't have the control that we hope we would. We're all out of control. Our lives are all in the hands of God. So all of our desire and our attempts to control our circumstances ultimately end in failure. But there's other characters in the story that represent a different approach to uncertainty. And that other approach to dealing with uncertainty is following. In the face of uncertainty, we can try to control or we can choose to follow. First, we see the wise men. It's interesting that Matthew would include the wise men in this story because um, wise men were people that were not well respected. And this really speaks of the historicity of the, the account because, you know, if this was a made-up account, there was, no re there was no way that Matthew would include wise men. Now, we call them wise men, which is kind of a nice, kind of flattering term, but they were closer to astrologers or uh, we might even, you know, kind of a modern-day equivalent might be tarot card readers. They were not well-respected in Judaism. They were pagans. They didn't believe in God. Uh, they were involved in these magical practices. And yet God reveals himself to them. And what do they do? They follow God with the light that they have. They see the star, and they follow as much as they know about God. And we see that they're following him every step of the way. And then when God reveals himself to them and says, you know, don't go back to Herod, they obey. They don't go back to Herod. And then you see a, a huge contrast. In the next chapter, in chapter 3, we see that John the Baptist is baptizing, and we see that the religious leaders, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, come, and they're just rejecting Jesus and rejecting John the Baptist. So on the one hand, you have these pagan astrologers that are following God and the religious leaders for rejecting the plan of God. And, and that's often how it is. The religious people try to control God, and others who you maybe don't expect follow after God. And so we see they follow after as much as they know about God. And they follow him every step of the way. That seems to be the pattern of the New Testament. But there's other characters in the story that do the same thing. We see Mary and Joseph. You know, Mary's a young girl and angel appears to her says, You're going to have a child by the Holy Spirit. 
And I can only imagine the things that are going through her head. She's probably terrified. You know, she's betrothed to Joseph. And so what is Joseph going to think? What is her family going to think? How is she going to provide for herself if she's kind of ostracized by the family, ostracized by Joseph? You know, Joseph hears about this. He's probably terrified as well. Probably incredibly hurt thinking that Mary has been unfaithful to him. He resolves to divorce her quietly. And yet an angel appears to him and says, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife. And they go on the journey to Bethlehem. And, you know, we only see kind of the, the surface level. We don't know what's going on in their minds. But we, what we do know is there was a lot of uncertainty. Uncertainty how the community was going to react. How they were going to provide for themselves. How life was going to look with this child being born to them. And then Herod's trying to kill them. Herod's trying to wipe them out. Again, uncertainty. But what we see in the story is they follow God every step of the way. They follow God with what they have, one step of obedience, and we see that God provides for them. God protects them. We see even when there's this great threat, when all of the children are being destroyed, God reveals himself to them and says, go, you got to get out of here. And they go, they follow, and they're in the safest place imaginable. And there's a final character in the story that follows, and that's Jesus. While Jesus was, in a sense, control throughout his whole life, he chose to become a baby. He chose to follow the plan of God rather than his own plans. We get to uh, his adulthood, he's being tempted by Satan, and really the fundamental temptation that Satan tempts him with is try to control your circumstances. If you're really the son of God, turn these stones into loaves of bread. Take matters into your own hands. You're hungry. Forget about the father. Just take matters into your own hands. You have the power. Go up to the temple. Throw yourself down. Show yourself to be the Messiah. Why are you, what are you waiting for? You have this power. Use it. If you want the kingdoms of the earth, bow down to me and I'll give you everything that you ever wanted. The, the temptation is to control his circumstances rather than to follow the plan of God. We see this temptation in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus has just been betrayed by Judas and the following scene unfolds in Matthew chapter 21, verses 51 to 54. It says, And behold, one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Then Jesus said to him, put your sword back into its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my father, and he will at once send me more than twelve legions of angels? But how then should the scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? The one who drew the sword, who we know as Peter, was trying to control the circumstance. He was saying, Jesus, let's fight this. But Jesus knew the plan that God had for him that involved his death, his sacrifice. So he said, no, let's not control this. Let's not fight this. Let's follow the plan that God has ordained for me. We see this played out throughout all of Scripture, this choice of whether to control or to follow. We see it way back with Abraham, where God comes to Abraham and he says, leave your homeland and go to the land that I'll show you. Okay, God, which, which land are you talking about? How long am I going to be there? How am I going to provide for myself? Where, how am I going to become a great nation? I, I don't even have any children. 
See, God could have given him an itinerary and said, all right, you're going to go here, you're going to go there, you're going to go this way, this is how I'm going to do this. But he doesn't do that. He doesn't give him an itinerary because he wants him to follow. He wants him to follow him. And that's what he wants us to do. He wants us to follow him every step of the way. I think sometimes as believers we get this idea that the more we follow after God, the more certainty we will have in terms of our circumstances. But the reality is the more that we follow after God, the more uncertainty we have. Because we're not in charge anymore. We're off the throne. All we're doing is following the plan that God has for us. And so in terms of our circumstances, there's less certainty. Because we don't know what God has for us. We don't know where we're going. And yet we do have certainty that grows as we follow after God in another area. We have certainty in the character of God. See, as we follow God in uncertainty and God provides for us and leads us through the valley of the shadow of death, we find that God is faithful. We find that God is there for us. We find that God will never leave us and never forsake us. And so we might not have certainty in regards to our circumstances, but we can have increased certainty in regards to the God who leads us through the valley. George Sweeting, former president of Moody Bible Institute, once said this, if you take this first step in faith, the others come easier. We walk by faith and not by sight. Faithfulness to follow today will prepare you for tomorrow. It's all a matter of following. Last June, I went on a trip to Colorado with some friends, and uh, friends wanted to go on this whitewater rafting trip. And I got to be honest, I wasn't looking forward to the rafting portion of this trip at all. Um, it was not a beginner's trip, it was an intermediate trip, and I wasn't looking forward to it because I was afraid I was going to die. So, the, and it was, it was serious. Like, this wasn't like this little, you know, slow. This was like just below the rapids at the falls, literally just below the rapids at the falls. Not the falls, obviously, but the rapids down there. So it's pretty intense, way, you know, rapids. So we go there, and we meet this guide, and this guide, he, he is crazy. He laughs at danger. He was telling stories of things that he had done, and I can't even repeat some of the stories. They were just crazy stuff. And he'd done this particular path that we were going on hundreds of times. And so we start off, and, you know, the, way, the rapids at the beginning were, were not too intense. wasn't very frightening. And then he pulls us off to the side, to the shore. And he's like, okay, let's go look at what's coming up next. And so we walk along the shore. And we look down, and there's, like, incredibly fierce rapids. And I'm starting to get nervous. And so we go back and, and get into the boat, and here's one thing I can tell you. When he spoke, I listened. Everybody else in the boat listened. You know, he would tell us, row, and we would row. He would tell us, get down, get down, and we would get down. He told us what to, have, what to do if we fell out of the boat, how to stay safe, that you're supposed to, you know, have your feet go forward so you don't hit the rocks. I remember he told us about one particular, one particular location. There was this big boulder in the water, and uh, there was like a current that went underneath the rock. And he said, if you fall over at this spot, get away from that rock because you could get swept up in the current and get stuck under that rock. 
So when he spoke, we listened. Now, if you were to ask me, was this a safe trip? I would say, if you decide you're going to rent a raft and go down these rapids by yourself, you probably are going to die. I would say if you go on this trip and you decide you're just going to do your own thing, not listen to what the guide says, you're probably going to get hurt. He might be able to save you, but you're probably going to get hurt. But if you're in reasonably good health and follow the directions of the guide, it's a relatively safe trip. But what matters most is who you're following. Are you trying to do it yourself or are you following somebody who knows what you're doing, what, 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 what they're doing? And I think that's kind of the question that we're all faced with. We all deal with uncertainty. Life in 2023 is going to be uncertain. But the question is, who are we following? We don't know what the next week will bring. You know, we all expected to be here last week for Christmas and Christmas Eve, but we had a blizzard. Who knows what we're going to have next week? But do we really trust God? Do we trust that he's going to care for us? Do we trust enough to give him control, to follow after him? Do we really believe that God can come through for us? It's really a hard thing to do sometimes. Pastor and former chaplain of the Senate, Lloyd Ogivlia, once said this, Our need to be in charge of ourselves, others, and situation often makes our relationship with Christ life's biggest power struggle. We're reluctant to relinquish our control and allow him to run our lives. We may believe in him and be active in the church and Christian causes, but trusting him as Lord of everything in life can be scary. Even though we pray about our challenges and problems all too often, what we really want is strength to accomplish what we've already decided is best for ourselves and others. Meanwhile, we press on with our own priorities and plans. We remain the scriptwriter, casting director, choreographer, and producer of the drama of our own lives in which we are the star performer. The question is, will we stay on the throne of our lives as we enter the new year, or will we allow Christ to be on the throne? I hope that we can all keep our New Year's resolutions to, whether it's losing weight or being in the Bible regularly or spending time with family or whatever the case may be, I hope we can keep those resolutions. But we need something deeper. We can need something deeper to deal with failure. That when we fail our resolutions, we may say in our hearts, though I fail, yet I will follow. Yet I will press forward for the goals that Christ has for me. The ironic part is, as we give up control, as we surrender to Christ, he starts to change those areas of our lives that we couldn't change on our own. Because the truth is, self-control can only get us so far. Jesus is the only one who can change our hearts. And so as we surrender control to him, choosing not just to control our circumstances, but to follow after him, ironically, he gives us more control. He changes our hearts and forms us more and more into his image. Bill Thrall, Bruce McNeil, and John Lynch, in, in their book, True Face, said this, Many of us act as if repentance is a matter of the will, but we can't will ourselves into change. We can't will ourselves into feeling contrition or remorse. Repentance isn't doing something about our sin. Rather, it means admitting that we can't do anything about our sin. We cannot woo ourselves into anything but the most external form of repentance. All of our efforts, striving, and willpower have only momentary external value when it comes to fighting an opponent as crafty, intentional, persistent, powerful, and experienced as sin. Understand this. The intention 
not to sin is not the same as the power not to sin. God did not design us to conquer sin on our own. To think we can do so is an incalculable undervaluing, undervaluing of sin's power combined with the huge overvaluing of our own willpower. As we enter this new year, let us choose to follow rather than to control. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your great love for us. We thank you that you've promised us in your word that if you didn't spare your own son, you'll not spare any good thing for us. We thank you that as a good and perfect God, you hold our lives in your hands. That there's nothing that happens in our lives that takes you by surprise. Lord, as we enter into this new year, Lord, we pray that you change our hearts. Give us the discipline to make these changes in our lives that we hope to make. But deeper than that, Lord, help us to follow you with all of our hearts. Knowing that we can't change in and of ourselves. That only by following you can we be safe and secure in your arms. Lord, give us the strength to do that by your Holy Spirit today. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.